Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back or have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 104. As always, joined by the three amigos. We've got Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, in his uh, new Patagucci vest. Rich Diaz, Tom Brady, and Macro in Montreal. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Keith? Hey, good morning, everyone. So this is the big This is the big episode. We, You guys missed the conversation or the, the very poorly calculated a math problem we try to do here we're trying to figure out if this was our second anniversary episode or not and uh what did you conclude rich it is it is 52 times 2 is in fact 104 and not 204 keith <laughs> so that's two so years guys we, we i think got we it. all yeah we want to put you know a very sincere thank you for everyone to uh you know to tuning in every week uh i think everyone knows now three of us we have a ball doing this all the time there is some real genuine uh, love be- between all of us here, and uh, I love it. I look forward to it. So it's it's been good. So how m- we'll have to talk later on the, as this episode whether we'll you know the government will uh, allow us to continue because that was big news this week. But uh, what else? Don't do you say have anything here? bad. <laughs> Unacceptable <Don't> views. <laughs> it's only um, bad if they deem it to be bad. So we right. don't know. That, yeah, we don't. But know it is a go. you know little give ourselves a pat on the back here um you know we haven't missed a week you know in two years um through thick and thin traveling the world you know boomer's been all over the place uh rich you've been what halifax uk montreal portugal you guys joined me on my honeymoon last year we've been uh, we've been all over the world filming this play filming this uh this podcast so yeah two years straight and i i wouldn't change a thing I'm sure your wife really enjoyed us joining on your honeymoon. Yeah, she knows, she knows, she knows the priorities. So that's uh, right. Looney hour comes first, right, Boomer? Uh, yeah, except for you know, for, for this week, you know, everyone knows the uh, you know the story that you know that you know we record on Thursdays and this is released on Fridays, but we've thrown everyone for a loop this week. Today is Wednesday, so you're getting really? it on on a Thursday. Oh crap! I have to go. <laughs> no <I'm> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm the uh, one traveling. I'm, I'm traveling uh, here in a little bit, and so it just didn't make sense for us to uh, do it. Anyway, guys, let's get on here. Uh, you know, two years are done. That's the past. We're forward looking, and I have to tell you, everything that's been happening in, in the last week. Uh, it, again, it's just been outstanding for what I'm seeing, and uh, I'm sure Steve, you, you and Rich are seeing the, the same thing as well. Yeah, I think there's a really important asterisk here, obviously, that we're recording on Wednesday and like these markets seem to be fluctuating every day uh, in a meaningful way. So, you know, if you're listening listening to this episode on Friday and we missed some big news on Thursday, you can blame Keith, who's uh, traveling to San Fran, San Fran to watch the big game. We're going to get into the predictions um too. I, yeah, it's at the end, of course, of, of the okay. episode. Yeah, there's really like gotta... five guys are interested in that, so you keep them on till the end. Yeah, the cliffhanger. 
yeah, out to the Bay Area, a couple of meetings, and then have a bit of fun at the same time. Yeah, no, it's good. Well, we do have some updates here uh, on the housing file. Um, obviously, Vancouver and Toronto. Everyone was kind of waiting for the for the September numbers because I think, as we talked about several episodes ago, right, which was you can't really gauge a how the health or strength of a housing market in the summer months. It's just a seasonally slower time of the year. There's not usually a lot of inventory. So September is typically like your 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 uptick, your fall market, uh September, October. And so, you know, this is kind of like the first real test, I think, for the housing market in quite some time. And uh so we did get some numbers out of Vancouver and Toronto. So in Toronto uh, home prices dropped uh, again for the second consecutive time. New listings were up 11% uh, on a year-over-year basis. So benchmark price of a, of a home in Toronto dropped 0.8% in September, following a 0.2% decline the previous month. So Toronto is uh, is slowing. September sales were really weak. Uh, I just had a good conversation with uh, John Pasalis, uh, who's, you know, I do, a, I do a monthly show with him. So we just recorded that yesterday, but just, just chatting with him, like anecdotally what's happening over there. Things are slowing really sharply. Um, showing activity is down. Prices are coming off. It's probably not the full on panic that, you know, you read about on Twitter, but it's a market that I would say is definitely softer than Vancouver. Um, but Vancouver, hey, what's the, hey, Steve, so what's the local reaction? So like, are people, you know, still in that mad rush to buy, but they're being a little bit hesitant about it or are people who are want to sell, are they the ones who are nervous? Like, or is there any reaction at all yet? Uh, I think that people that have been buying even in September, right? Like, this is the thing. Like people that were buying in September, a lot of them are still buying on like old rate holds, right? So I got a client right now that's got a rate hold at, you know, 5.1% that expires in three weeks. And Wait, like, what do you okay. mean? They're, they're porting their mortgage, you mean? No. So like when you go, so when you go to like a mortgage broker or bank, um, they'll give you, they'll like, you know, when you first submit your application, they'll give you a rate hold. So they'll say, oh, oh okay, oh, like you're, sorry. you're pre-approved. And we're going to hold this rate for you for, you know, usually it's, a, I think it's, a, usually it's 120 days, depending on the lender. So they'll hold it. So like, we can guarantee you this rate, no matter what happens in the bond market, you get this rate for, you know, you got, but you got 120 days to, to find something and close on it in 120 days. So there's still people that are transacting. Keep in mind, the sales volumes are really weak, but people are still transacting at rate holds of like five, 5.1, 5.3, 5.5. And I can tell you like the new rate today uh, is about, you know, three-year fixed mortgage rate is going to be like 6.3, So, you know, I would argue that- So why don't you share with us what would be be the change in a mortgage payment for say someone borrowing a a million bucks just to keep it round? Man, you're really putting me on the spot here. Um, I can tell you if I run some quick Mm. math on this. So- Mm -mm. Keith, I thought you were the one who was good at math. Remember, it was yeah, episode I, I 204. <laughs> I keep telling everyone I'm I'm actually good with math. That's okay, what I'll let's, say. Yeah, let's twice do this. now I've concluded I'm maybe not as sharp. So let's keep the numbers like relatively clean and simple. So let's just say you were going to borrow a million dollars on a 30-year amortization and you got a rate hold at 5.2%. Um, your mortgage payment is 54.57. 54.57. And now the new rate, let's say 6.2. Uh, six thousand seventy-four. So, 
What is that? There's my math. Thirteen hundred dollars more. Yeah. Is that so? We'll call, oh, well we'll call it an extra six hundred. <laughs> right, Rich. Did you like well that, done. Rich? Hey, thanks. Yeah. See. Yeah, six hundred bucks a month for basically, let's call it a three-year term, right? So if you don't get that transaction, and now again, I know the flip side of it is, well, why don't these people wait? Of course, prices are going to come down, but like that's. I would argue that a lot of people don't necessarily live their life in a spreadsheet. Like a lot of people just like, ah, I want a family home and prices maybe probably might come down and, but I'm going to live here for the next eight or nine years. And my wife wants our kid to be in this neighborhood so they can start school and build a community. Like that's how most people live. Steve, I have a question. What is the single busiest month for real estate? I can't believe we've never in two years. I can't March, believe I've never March, asked or, that March or April. March or April. So the yeah. spring. Spring market's the busiest, but I would say fall is like the second busiest, right? So September and October are like pretty good tests for the market. Okay. Um, okay. Now switching gears to Vancouver, just I'll give you guys a quick update. Um, yeah, sales sales were weak. Uh, down 13% or sorry, they're actually up 13% year over year. So people might get a little bit confused, but if you actually look at September of last year, it was like outside of like September of like 2008, which was like literally the global financial crisis. Um, like there was like the worst September in 20 years. So naturally like on, again, base effects, everybody's learning about sales are up 13%, but there's still like 25% below long-term averages. What is interesting is that new listings have finally, I think this is like the big thing to keep an eye on moving forward is like new listings were finally back to like normal levels. In fact, they were like slightly above their long-term average, which is like for a good chunk of the last year, new listings have been hovering at like 10, 15, 20 year lows for for many many months um and that's really supported prices despite mortgage rates moving higher and so finally here in september we finally got new listings back to really historical norms and sales were really weak so inventory is now going to slowly start to build coming off a record low base but i do think that's going to be a, a headwind here for the back half of this year so so do you, so you do think that's when prices continue to sort of gap down again now that there's so. more inventory Yes, but there's still, I still would like in an absolute level, like inventory levels are still really low. Okay. okay. Um, but just demand is so bad that like prices are coming off a bit right now. And I think that's going to continue in the back half of this year. I mean, you, like I said, you got mortgage rates stuck in the sixes and um, hard to see how that's going to change in a material fashion over the next two, three months. So, so what are the four like? So I'm thinking like there's four different pieces all pulling at pulling at the price together. Where you got the rates, you got the inventory, you've got demand, and then I guess that's it. Or and then you've got just like I guess the supply of new homes, right? Those are the like sort of the four yeah. different things that. So yeah, supply of new homes. I don't think is like that big of a deal here. Okay. Um, I just think it really comes down to interest rates, what people can qualify for, you know, at 6.3, you're stress tested at 8.3. OSFI is expected to come out with some announcements and uh, I think later this month or early November. So I think the regulators, you know, actually the OSFI was out um, talking about some concerns in the commercial real estate market. So I think OSFI right now, like that Peter Rutledge guy has got to be working around the clock. I think, I think he's probably shitting bricks. <laughs> like, He's going to be a busy guy. Do you have any views on commercial real estate or? Not really. I mean, okay. Keith does. 
Keith does. I'm sure. Come on, Keith. <laughs> Give us the data. I have a view on everything. I do know something that you guys just didn't discuss that might affect mark real estate market a, a little bit differently than just supply and everything. That is that uh, us not achieving a soft landing. It's <laughs> it's getting a bit slippery out there, everyone. Well, Should we someone yeah. someone yeah. looped the up the something? runway? Yeah, the data just some data just came out in the U.S. that it's not so hot. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's different though. I mean, we'll go through all that, but uh, I, I again, like you know, you you guys are too young to realize that the economic uh, cycle does it produce does produce a recession every now and then, and we're we're gonna have one. And if it's harder than what you know everyone is talking about, uh, you know that demand side for real estate. So supply may not go up too much, Steve, yeah. but the demand side could just fall off a cliff here. Or alternatively, you know, uh, commercial banks raise up mortgage rate because they have to, you know, they're concerned Keith, about uh, losses. Yeah. I, I would argue that, and again, I'm not saying it, it can't get worse, but the demand side is really bad right now. Like if you look at sales volumes. So if it's really bad, I'm just suggesting it might get really, really Yeah, Yeah, yeah fair really enough. Bad. Like, <laughs> Sales, so that's sales three reallys. Rich, if on a math scale, one really versus three reallys, how do you how do you quantify? Oh it? God, I don't know. <laughs> so I don't have the exact figures in like Toronto, right? But like I said, Vancouver. So sales are twenty five percent below the twenty year average for September. Now think about how many like people population growth over the last twenty years. Like it, it, demand is really weak, and I think, like I said, inventory is still low on an absolute level. And so if inventory builds, which I think it will over the next several months. Um, I But I think like one thing to keep in mind for people is like real estate is, especially residential side is really slow moving. I mean, you think you're seeing the commercial side, right? Like, like there hasn't really been a lot of price discovery. Because, you yeah, know, everybody's just putting it mildly, mate. <laughs> yeah, everybody's like sitting on these assets. Nobody wants to reprice it. Everybody knows cap rates need to go higher. Um, but like, there's just, like commercial real estate's gone no bid. Residential sellers are digging their heels in, and everybody. The great thing though about commercial real estate, you know, the the institutions who own it, like pension funds and stuff, they they never have to market anyway. So it, it could just it could just sit there for a long time and until it doesn't. Is that what they're, they're doing with their bond holdings too? Oh man, he you said did you say shit show earlier? Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah, Is that the Peter. expression you? Peter shit and bricks. This is this is a oh, kid okay, show. Like this that. is a kid yeah. show. Shame on you guys. This is a kid show. It's, it's two years of poo talk going on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, because you know, there there a few months ago we talked about you know the private lending market, you know, private loans that's going out there in BlackRock, of course. You know, when, when BlackRock releases a fund of some sort for something, you know, it's the the top or the bottom of, of the market depending on which way you're you're looking at it. But the way the fixed income wor- works. You know, for, for over a decade, we had no price discovery. I, I love that expression, by the way, Steve, you brought it up. We had no price discovery in, in the bond world. And, and so we because we had zero rates, you know, and, and low next to zero, it, it just forced every single bond manager out there to, you know, to sell government debt, buy corporate debt, buy high yield debt, buy emerging market debt, buy um, what's that, preferred debt, shares. Debt. Debt on debt on debt, and then private <laughs> loans, like anything to maximize yield, because it never had to be marked. You didn't have to worry about it, you know. But now they are starting to be worried. I, I think it's, you know, I think things could turn here. You know, maybe we, we've 
you know, hope is never a great strategy, but I think well, the hope, yeah, the hope is that maybe things stabilize a bit, but if, if not, it could be a, a bit concerning. See, what was like the top of the, like the bond market? Wasn't it? It was like, was it Austria? Who is selling a hundred year bonds? Austria. It was Austria. hundred year bonds. Zero coupon. Zero coupon. It was a food fight to get them too. So a couple of years ago, um, I was, uh, we had an opportunity to, to short that in, not, not for the Canadian portfolio, as you imagine, it was something else we do. And uh, the broker came back and they located, you know, the, you know, the shares for us or whatever you want to call it in the, in the bond world. They said, yeah, we have it here for you if you want to short it. So shorting, people don't realize this, but if you're shorting shares of IBM or something like that, it's, it's not a big deal because you can always... Because what happens, like, if I'm shorting it, Steve will lend me the shares, and I sell them to Rich, because Rich is a sucker, right? He's going to buy them. <laughs> and then, and then at, at some point, uh, Steve's going to come back to me and say, hey, Keith, I want those shares back. And I go back to Rich, and, you know, Rich still holds them. So it's easy for me to buy them from Rich or just buy them for the market, right? Because they're shares of IBM. In the bond world... A lot of bonds are just not liquid. You know, the, the pension funds buy them and tuck away, and you can never find them again until they mature. So with this with this Austrian bond, the exercise we went through, we said, okay, we can borrow these shares. Someone's willing to lend them to us, and then we'll quickly sell them to somebody else. But if if the person who lent them to us comes back and says, hey, we want our shares back, then we have to go out and be the buyer. And so you might be short a market in the bond world, and if it's it is in a liquid market, uh, you know you could get caught in a another poo analogy, I guess, if you want to go go with. We got to <laughs> so, change it up. We got to yeah, change this up. Well, let, think, let me right? let me help with this a little bit. But so I'm, I'm not I, finished. I was, though. I'm not finished oh, with the Austrian sorry. bond. It Tell turned me. out that would have been like if you short the Austrian bond at at issuance or about a year after or six months. I think it traded up close to maybe I'm guessing now 160, 140. I'm looking at it right now. Was it, it 140? Yeah, it went up to 140. Where's the trading now, Rich? At what level? 34. 34. <laughs> Man, talk about like you would have made about 4x on your trade. And there's zero coupon on that bad boy. No, no, I lied. So that's where I wanted to correct myself. It, it was 85 basis points. So less than 1% coupon on a 100-year bond. And inflation's <laughs> at like 4% yeah. annualized. So guess Sorry, who was the big winner? Guess who was the big winner on, on that transaction? The Austrian government. Of course, it was a they brilliant were. trade. It was a brilliant, if brilliant trade. Only in Canada, we had a government that would have went out and borrowed. They could have borrowed a trillion dollars at zero percent for a hundred years. Um, yes, would... it, it was oversubscribed. So that's the other thing. You know, we always talk about people sort of pitching to to purchase that stock. So they received some kind of something like sixteen billion euros worth of orders. Not that much money, but the point is, is that there was appetite for this product. And uh, as you said, Steve, our dear leaders could have at least extended the maturity past two years. <laughs> Who's the bond trader at the desk there? Hey, guys, the, the trader does execution only usually, not the management side. So don't, don't blame the trader. Uh, however, the great thing... Blame the Russians. <laughs> it's disinformation. Oh, God. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Blame the Russians. Uh, but the great thing about the Austrian 100-year 100, 100 bond issuance for Canada is that Austria is not a member of the G7, so it still makes us look okay on a lot of metrics. Mm. 
By the way, Rich is giggling hey. all the time here. If you, you can see him, it's just funny. Rich. It's just funny because it's tragic. That's why. Honestly, I laugh and because or else I, if I don't laugh, I'll true. cry. It's funny and true. Yeah, sorry. Rich, when you were uh, when you were uh, running the big uh, the big boys there at Acorn Macro, yeah, um, you did point out a lot of the government's inability to lock in um, cheap long term debt. And and so a lot of our debt issuance during the the pandemic, there our spending spree was actually a shorter duration. I don't know if this is like a so this is posted on Twitter here uh, by uh, Hanif Bayat, who uh, runs that site Wawa.ca. So they're pretty big there. But he he I don't know if his math is necessarily correct, but he meant so he says over the last four months, from April to July of 2023, government revenue has been 146 billion dollars. Interest payments have been fourteen point five billion. So he's saying ten percent debt service ratio. So it says soon, soon enough, over eleven percent of our taxes will be used for government debt interest payments uh, because the five year bond he's noting is has obviously surged to uh, almost four and a half percent. Yeah, I mean that was the problem. So when when there was lots of debt issued, again, right or wrong, let's 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 move past that. The point is when all that debt was issued, it was issued on a very very short duration. Now people say, well, it's not fair. How can you say that? Well, number one, there's number two things. One, when the world was caving in on itself, um, yes, central bankers were buying lots of bonds to depress interest rates, but so was everybody else when they sold the S and P 500 and they were worried about a zombie apocalypse. There was loads and loads of appetite for bonds. Case in point, people buying an 85 basis point, 100-year Austrian bond. And so they could have pushed out that maturity much, much further. Let's say maybe not to 100 years, but certainly past two or five or whatever it was. I think, remember, do you remember the numbers, Steve? I mean, it's been two years since we talked about it, but I think it was like 67% of all the debt was issued below three years or something like that. I mean, it was yeah. a horrific, you got to pull the old number. chart deck there, buddy. Yeah, I don't have it anymore. I work for PGM Global, which is an excellent company. Free plug. Free plug. <laughs> uh, but no, but it, uh, it, the point really is that go ahead sorry keith something uh just to share with, with people um you know people might say well why the hell would you buy a hundred year bond paying out 80 basis points um it, just remember that the world really is broken down between institutional investors like the really big gobs of money and then you know the, the rest of us that the rest of us you know we'll trade it you know, we're we don't live forever like a pension fund and we're sensitive to losses and things like that. But the attractiveness of a 100 year bond for a pension fund, uh, it's it's extremely attractive because they don't really care about the yield on it too much. Because one thing with a pension fund, they really have two pools to look at, okay, two, two buckets. One is the assets that's in the pension fund itself, and one is the liabilities. So when you have a 100-year bond, the, the duration for that is a great offset to, to liabilities that the pension might have as well. So that, that may not mean much to, to you know some of you listening, but just to share with you, uh, you know, no, pension funds are pretty smart, you know, and uh, so it, you know, they didn't make a total no dumb trade on it. Uh, but you know, the, the new theme, math is the math on, on this episode. <laughs> and it it's it certainly comes back to as the issuer of the debt, you know, Austria was was quite smart to do that. Keith, what else have you been uh, flagging? We've obviously got some, uh, you know, we've talked about this bond market volatility. Um, you know, you think, you would think, you know, it's interesting, right? Because it's like, 
bond market, you know, yields are pushing higher and higher and higher seemingly every day. Yet I would argue, I mean, Rich might disagree, but the economic data doesn't really look that great. Um, Canada's PMI, uh, you know, laid another one in the diaper there. <laughs> That's I the see theme of the did. show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we've been talking now for maybe two years that the economy may eventually slow down, you know, two years, of course. But uh, we're now starting to get the confirmation that that it is happening. And remember recently we, we talked about, you know, financial markets, you know, they were hoping and waiting for central banks to stop raising rates. And every time we got a bit of soft economic data or softer inflation data or in the growth side, whatever, the markets cheered and you know, the stock market went up and, and all that stuff was going on because, you know, nobody wants higher rates. Um and the, but we also commented that at some point that is going to turn in that bad economic data is going to start to be seen as, oh, wow, we, we, we were closer to a recession. And then the conversation comes to, is it going to be a soft landing or a hard landing or stagflation? No landing. Things. Or no, no landing. landing. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think that's long gone. But so that's what's happening now. So we're, we're starting to see you know, some pretty soft data out there. And, you know, the last couple of weeks, especially, you know, things are starting to, to sell off. What's interesting, I, I came across this, uh, I came across this, this uh, article, I think it was a Bloomberg one. And it, it talked about uh, the number of times soft landing has been researched in newspapers over, over the last week or two weeks, whatever. And it was pretty high. Then it showed, Economists estimates leading into the last four recessions. So it goes back to the 90s, right? Early the first recession, 1991. And uh, each of those four recessions we had, right up to the most recent one, economists as a whole, they all missed it. And they're all predicting a soft landing at that time. And the reason why they missed it, because all the, you know, the economists, again, as, as a consensus as a whole, there are some, you know, individual ones who would predict it and everything, but they're, you know, they effectively say, you know, we just see the world in a normal economic cycle and that we don't anticipate, you know, these extreme events or fat tail events. And boy, they happen all the time. Fat tail events happen all the time. So if we do get a bit of a, uh, you know, a, a not of a not soft landing or hard landing, it, it's going to distort a lot of capital out there that hasn't, you know, priced in this the, the least bit. So that's why we're getting all this nervousness right now with markets are, are coming off. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of like it because we, we prefer to buy, buy low and sell high. Right, Rich? Creating visual content is an essential part of what I do, but the creative process hasn't always been easy. That is, until we discovered Canva. The Looney Hour uses Canva to create images for our podcast thumbnails and signage for our live events. Designing custom artwork using Canva is so easy, even the boomer can do it. Canva for Teams is a design platform that makes it easy for anyone to create stunning content in any format, from social media posts to videos, presentations, and websites. Ever since I found Canva for Teams, it's been easy to collaborate and design with the team, which makes the whole process so much more creative 
creative and fun. We've also used Canva to collab with our marketing team around the world to design cover art for our podcast. It's super easy to drag and drop logos and create professional looking content using Canva for teams. Design and collaborate with Canva for teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash Looniar. That's canva.me slash Looniar for a free 45-day extended trial. Canva.me slash Looniar. I think so. I think that was like CFA level one. Um, but Steve, you said you're talking about the, what was it, bond volatility you were mentioning? And there's different ways to measure, measure that bond volatility. There's something called the move index, which is, is rather famous. But we also talk about, but what I think is interesting is the equity volatility has also caught up for, well, not in absolute terms, but definitely sort of directionally. And how you measure that is something called the CBOE VIX index. So I think it's the Chicago Board of Exchange. Yes, I think I got that right. And that CBOE index basically on, I mean, there's there's different VIX. There's something called the VDAX, which is based on the DAX, which is the German stock market. And the VIX is based on the S&P 500. And they use basically um, options and uh, the price of options to sort of assess the volatility or the movements intraday or intra, I guess you could do it per minute, whatever, um, of what's going on in the market. And so for long, for the last like couple of years, people have talked about the dislocation between the volatility of bonds and stocks. And that's fair enough. But I think that's sort of, you know, that sort of misses the trick. I think what's more, I mean, what's more interesting now is that over the last month, you've seen the VIX jump from, let's say, a 13, which is relatively low historically, um, all the way to 18, 19. So that doesn't sound like a lot. But what's interesting is that's moving along with the bond and uh, the bond volatility as well. So those things are just moving together. And so you're basically losing money on bonds and you're losing money on stocks. So. Which, which is a really good point because, you know, we've been taught that you have this balanced fund mandate. Yeah. You know, if the stocks do poorly, the bonds will hold it up. And if bonds are doing poorly, then stocks, you know, will hold that up and everything. Yeah, we get both of them are. Yep. That's only in true direction. in a world where you have interest rates go from 20% to zero in a straight line, right, Keith? Like it's in a world of falling interest rates, that works. Hmm. If, if, only, of... if only people could produce a long-term chart on something, <laughs> they would they would so, see it. Speaking of the uh, some of the data, Rich, I was kind of curious your thoughts on this because I think it was today. So we've had this like huge movement in the bond market, um, you know, over the last week or two. I think like you know Canada had the national holiday there on Monday. And so obviously, you know, the, the bonds weren't trading on Monday, but uh, I think we opened up Tuesday and the Canada five-year bond was up like 25 basis points, which is like, mm-hmm. absolutely, <laughs> that's not incredible. I wonder how many times it's happened and sorry, keep going. Keith, that's got to be like a, what, like a multi-standard deviation move. Like that's. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty unusual and it's happening across the curve. So uh, again, I think everyone understands by now that, you know, these rate movements we're seeing, not necessarily, so remember the Bank of Canada hasn't hiked now for how long? Pull, pull it up. When's the last time they hiked? Oh, June. Two, two months yeah, ago, June or something. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, they paused before that as well. So is, is it two hikes this year? Two. They did two oh, this God. year. Yeah. They unpaused yeah. in uh, in the summer, I think. And they got they two. Un-paused? I think they, they sneaked two in in the summer. <laughs> Yeah, remember so it was go, the unpause. The unpause. The I thought you called it something else. He panicked after the spring it's the market. Pregnant panic. Uh, it, was it was the panic pause. <laughs> the panic, yeah, or the panic hike and all that stuff. Now I can't remember where I was going, but I, I do actually. Yeah. Do you have so the point is that we haven't had a lot of movement on on short term rates. 
Remember, that's where all the movement yeah. was. And now the rest of the yield curve is starting to, to catch up with it. And yeah. Well, I was going to say, I'd chime in there because it's interesting. Like, you know, right. You know, what we're actually seeing now is they actually seeing uh, because of what you just described, right? So fixed rates are like, like ripping and uh, the, the shorter end, like, you know, on, on like, so people are going, there's a lot more people now slowly starting to tip their toes into the variable mortgage product once again, after being completely scarred over the last uh, 18 months. People are now looking at it and saying, hmm, okay, the Bank of Canada's maybe done. Maybe one more hike is kind of what the market's priced in. And they're expecting, I think, what, one or two cuts next year? Like, again, these are these, these, this can change, but this is what the market is pricing. Um, and so you're actually starting to see people saying, okay, well, maybe I should go with a variable as opposed to locking in at, you know, 18 year highs or whatever on your fixed rate. Yeah, and I don't know the answer but, to that because we do not provide investment mortgage advice. What is the uh, Keith? Do you have it on your uh, Bloom tubes though? I am curious if the rate hike expectations uh, have shifted at all um, because you know I would argue that if I'm Tiff Macklem sitting in the the chair of the BOC, I have to be looking at the bond market and saying, "Hmm, this is kind of doing the job for me." I don't have it. I think Rich has it up there, don't you, Rich? I do, I do. You have to stall, stall while you type computer is gonna crash. <laughs> oh no. I think no, you're right. Though, behaving today. Yeah, they are finally getting some help from you know the, the market itself. And just remind everyone the only way the Bank of Canada can really achieve their uh, objective is to punish grocery stores for selling food. No, that's that's <laughs> not the answer, is it? We're really gonna get shut down here. Uh but the and this is sincere and truthful. The only way for central banks to to really bring inflation down is to crush the economy, and it doesn't <clears throat> it doesn't sound nice. It is not pleasant at all. But you have to crush demand. That's it. Or they can just start building manufacturing plants for everything, everywhere, and get the supply chain moving. But you know that ain't going to happen. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're secretly hoping for a non-soft landing. And if we get it, I hope you're ready for it. Are you ready for it, Steve? I got my tinfoil hat on. No, I'm ready. Well, I mean, it's actually funny. So I don't, Keith, speaking. I agree with you 100%, by the way. Why is that yeah, a tinfoil hat? I was just why, bugging why you. I'm that? just bugging you. <laughs> no, no, he's they're bugging me. <laughs> Thank you for that, boys. Um, but no, just what's funny is actually there's still, I mean, some smidge of interest rate hike priced in the market. So I'm looking at, you know, the famous WERP, if you've got a Bloomberg machine, and it says 25% chance of a rate hike by December. Well, so that's pretty low, though. I know, I know. It's obviously fallen. Remember, I think it was up to fifty percent a little while ago. So there's your answer, Steve. It's it's come down quite a bit. So that's probably a like a one in four chance, something yeah. maybe, right? But it's not nothing. <laughs> not nothing. And then it's they got nothing. a couple couple cuts priced in for next year. Still, no, not even not on mine. And there's still hikes technically priced in. So let's just say no cuts until the until November of 2024. There you go. And, and, you go. and by the way, do you. You could actually have central banks right now, like the Americans especially. Um, you know, they could be thinking, you know what, we need to do one more here, or maybe two or one in state hawkish, and that will do the trick. You know, so maybe Yeah, it's not a bad point. Just 
Yeah. Put your foot, put your foot. Do you remember what my strategy there. would have been a year ago? Do you remember hope? what I said I would have done? Hope. No. <laughs> I would have hiked rates by a hundred or two hundred points. Just <laughs> do it just like that, and like crush them like ants. Well, actually, it, you know, I mean, I like ants, so let's not crush them. But one thing I think is important to us, I think, is just you know, seeing seeing as, as it's our second anniversary. Just give wait us a, little a second. Of... You you like ants? Is that what <laughs> yeah, you, what do you do have a conversation with your dates about? <laughs> ants are hey, my amazing. name's Rich. They can. My name is Rich. Like... I like ants. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm out of here. <laughs> ants can lift like multiples of their body weight easily with their pincers they're amazing creatures come on talking about Rich's bench press again <laughs> are they called um, pinchers or do they have legs pincers, what, what a... pincer with this well they have little live legs they have six legs and they have pincers <laughs> it's amazing that's amazing big ant um, guy uh, no it's, it's amazing that you're actually talking about it not that they can do these <laughs> um but anyway two years guys we achieved two years talking yeah, we about survived. this stuff oh yeah that's it so what i want to say was that we you know we talked about when interest rates were very very low and there was like forward we so something called forward guidance and what they did was they browbeat and bullied the long end of the curve to come down so it means long-term interest rates needed to come down towards let's just say zero for argument's sake i think they they bottomed at like 50 basis points and there was a lot of we're never going to raise interest rates again we're never going to raise interest rates again but they obviously Got that wrong. Thank you, Tiff. But but the, the key thing I think we're seeing now, and what I will say, I, I, we said this like maybe six months ago, is I think the opposite is now happening. And I think it was, it was, and maybe the market is finally, finally getting its head wrapped around it. And maybe that's what we're seeing where we saw it started with Jackson Hole last summer, if I'm not mistaken, Keith, when he was like, listen, kids, you're not understanding. We are going to raise interest rates and we're going to keep them high and bring them a lot. And I think it was bad. Remember you said it was like a two minute speech. It was very, very short. And I think it happened again just a couple of weeks ago where, you know, and I think given the relative strength in the U.S., given obviously the stickiness is inflation, thanks again, Tiff, um, we know that that what maybe that's what the market's um, uh, obviously pricing in. The other thing I think we don't talk enough about is the fact that the U.S. budget deficit is 8.4% of GDP. I mean, maybe it's off slightly than that, but it's just the incredible amount of debts and how... You know, that's until you get the governments to sort of rein in their spending, forget Canada for a second, whether it's Italy that just, you know, spooked the market with their budget deficits. The UK has no, there's no appetite for austerity in the UK either. The US don't, let's just, I mean, that's a joke. 8.4% is ridiculous. I don't care how many semiconductor factories you're building or what have you. And uh, so until you get those governments to start reining in their spending, you, there's a case that you're going to see these interest rates go higher and higher. And um, it'll be interesting to see how though that all squares out. Didn't didn't Italy just vote in some like pretty far right? Uh, like, the far anybody who's is that just is that just the, the media right painting yes, it as far? Yes. Okay, yeah, 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 classic. Yeah, um, I'm not saying she's good or bad or whatever. I mean, she made an absolute her bank taxes was absolutely ridiculous. So like she's made a couple of fumbles, but not everybody is far right. I think that's just well. I saw. So I don't really get any media sources anymore. It's, uh, <laughs> Hard to find these days. Yeah, you need a VPN. <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, well, you know, I think, um, Rich, I was also going to ask you on the, uh, so on the data front, is there anything yeah. that can start to There's ch- loads. Cha- well, yeah, to change the the outlook of the bond market. I mean, this is kind of a runaway runaway freight train. We did get some uh, data. So we had, I think we had jolts yesterday. Mm-hmm. 
we had ADP data in the U.S. today. Uh, the ADP data was was pretty weak, was it not? The ADP data was weak. You have to be careful with ADP because it's 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 always a bit. It's not the one that we really sort of you know hang our hopes on. It, the non-farm payrolls is that that comes out on the first Friday of every month, and that's in two days from now. Like, there's my math skills for you, Keith. Um, that comes out on, and, and you know we'll see. I mean that'll be very very important. The jolts. Um, what is what's the, the expectations for uh, oh, you, for Friday? Hold on, hold on, on it's coming. Three, two, uh, one. On. It's got the jolts for Friday non-farm payrolls. Change of non-farm payrolls is one fifty-five. It's actually quite a, quite low. One fifty-five. Um, so if you're listening to this Friday, you will probably have the number one fifty-five. That's the expectations. We'll see. Um, the other thing that comes out on Friday is the other, a very important, which is obviously the change in manufacturing payrolls. So we've gotten actually decent manufacturing data, whether it was the durable um, goods orders, the factory orders were okay. The PMIs have actually done decently well. Um, you could argue that there's like an inventory restocking portion of that. Um, the other stuff that comes out on Friday for the U.S. is average hourly earnings. Participation rates are very, very important. So it's not just important to look at the unemployment rate, but this, the labor force, who's entering or exiting the labor force. Um, obviously, wage growth is key. But the, back to your jolts thing, Steve, I think it jumped a lot. But I think you have to be really careful because that aid, that series is extremely volatile. So what I mean by that is that it actually bounces a lot, even though it is technically seasonally adjusted. There's still a lot of volatility in that series. So I never... <laughs> Can I give you one? Never pin a tweet when on one data point is what I would say. Got, yeah, go ahead. And I got a couple others, but go ahead. Keith, I'm going to get this guy going. Watch this. <laughs> so uh, according to the ADP, uh, professional and business services jobs plunged 32,000. But Jolt reported yeah. yesterday a 509,000 increase in professional and business service job openings. So uh, again, I don't know what's going on here. Are they but uh, so that's a really, really good point that you make, and I would definitely fade that Jolt's opening. And you say, Richard, why? Well, just a sec, a few minutes ago, the services PMI came out, and the employment came. Well, the employment component. Remember in the diffusion index, <laughs> my favorite pickup line of the two years. Uh, there's different components. There's like new orders. There's export orders. There's prices paid, inventory, et cetera, et cetera. And one of them was obviously employment. Are you hiring or firing people? And then new orders also absolutely cratered. So I haven't looked at the details quite just yet. What, so what data set is this? Sorry. That's the ISM non-manufacturing. So in parentheses, services, um, PMI, purchasing okay. managers index. And that so was, that's, uh, what did that come and that in came at? Out, yeah, it came in at, uh, it's still positive, 53.6. So still in expansionary territory, came in better than expected. It's above 50, right? 50 is your expansion decline line. Um, so we'll see. And remember, service is a much larger portion of the economy. But like one last thing and I'll, I'll pass it on, which is um is the, so on that jolts figure, you have it the job openings by region, um, and you have it by sort of uh, employment type. So you along with the businesses, business professionals, you might have whatever truckers. The thing that I keep interested in, something actually my, my colleague pointed out, which is you know, the lower income jobs that had seen so much wage growth and seen so much sort of appetite for those have actually really started to so retail uh, really started to like go down. So the retail sales stuff, like anybody works in the retailing and all those kind of similar type of jobs of those opportunities are really, really diminishing. 
And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, which is the temporary la- uh, temporary service employment, which is usually a leading indicator on the labor market. That's has also started to continue to fall. So Keith, there you go. There's your there's your roundup there for a little bit of the data. Maybe we should talk about the Canadian data. So Rich, what's your summary? The labor market. Are you finished now? I was I was kind of resting <laughs> with all that. <laughs> What's your summary, though? Basically, you're starting to see cracks in the labor market. Yeah, that's been true for a while, but it takes a, it takes a long time. Here you it's go. Here's another like, one for you, Keith. It's almost like house sellers trying to reduce their price. Yeah. The age dependency ratio. So, Keith, when you're old, like as such as yourself, um, you're not part of the labor force. And because people just haven't had enough kids and all the baby boomers have all the money um, and don't work, you have, a, you have a really, I would think you have a structurally tighter labor market. And that might delay this process for a while, but we'll see. So, you know, I, I know I'm getting older because so I had to, I went and bought a new pair of uh, like comfy walking shoes <laughs> a couple of nights ago. And, uh, you know, you know, when you rise, you say, oh man, I am getting old. Because I was totally going for comfort instead of look and name brand and, and all that stuff. So I come home with them. I found a perfect pair. So yeah, these, these are great. They feel really nice. And uh, you know, I show Mrs. Icecap, and the first thing she said was, "They look like old man shoes." <laughs> <laughs> what did you get? Uh, the New I Balance? Don't... No, no, they're not the New Balance ones. They're, you know, just apparently, a the, shoes to wear. apparently those are making a comeback. By the way, they are made. They have. You hold they them have. long enough, they'll come back. That's yeah, right. all my stuff is, uh, you know, is it's no longer out of fashion. It's now retro in style. coming into play. Uh, tell you what, though, for, you know, what I see, but, you know, Rich did a good job then, but the overriding theme with all the American data today was that none of it was, it wasn't bad. Like it was all okay, which again, it gives, gives the Federal Reserve more confidence that, you know, maybe if they want to hike again, they, they can do it. Whereas the rest of the world is getting some, you know, pretty weak data earlier, mm-hmm. a couple of days ago, I posted on Twitter, the monthly, uh, was it PMI or GDP PMI. data? PMI, yeah, for, for PMI Canada. manufacturing. You want to read out the numbers, Steve? Do you have them in, in front of you? Yeah, or... I do. Uh, so basically, let's go from like uh, January all the way down. Canada manufacturing. <laughs> keep in mind, as Rich will tell you, the you know fifties, anything north of fifty is expansionary. Anything south of that is obviously contractionary. Um, so we started the year at fifty-one, down to fifty-two, or up to fifty-two, uh, and over the last. Basically, since uh, April, so May, June, July, August, and September, it's all been in contractionary territory in Canada. So the latest number was has was the worst this year, forty seven point five Canadian manufacturing PMI. So, so it's going in the wrong direction, you know, so to speak. Uh, so speaking of direction, we have a, a directionless. Is that a word? Directionless. Less. Yes, that's a word. Data point coming out on Friday. Uh, Steve calls it the random number generator. And it just so happens it is probably the most important economic data point out of Canada. So we're talking about the uh, the net change in employment for Canada coming out on, on Monday. And it's going to move the market, you know, big time. What's the and expectation? We should do a Twinkie bet on this. We I should. can't bet on that number because it's, it's just pure guessing. Yeah, it's, it's just... great. It's like Russian roulette. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, you actually know with Rush Roulette, you have odds to work with. With this here, you don't. It's just, you know, you're just close a your chicken. eyes and you're a chicken, big chicken. 
Well, I don't think I'm a chicken to bet on a, a data point. Uh, okay, to set the tables, uh, the previous month it was it was forty thousand new jobs. This Friday they're expecting twenty thousand. So what are you in for, Steve? That's really bad. Twenty thousand. Yeah, I think what do they, I think they need? What do they need, Rich? You tell me. I think it was like they need like fifty thousand just to maintain current. Well, levels. yeah, we can do the math really quickly. If there's a million, if there's you know million people coming in a year, that's like you know let's say ninety thousand. With a population to a sort of employment population of half that of fifty percent, which is normal, by the way, before everybody gets up in arms. So you need about forty-five, fifty thousand. Yeah, there you go. Well done. That's about forty-five, fifty thousand dollars to keep people employed who come to this country. Keith, you said twenty thousand. Yeah, that's the estimate. Oh man, I mean, I'll go over. Uh, you know, just because I think that number is way too low. They're setting them. They're setting the expectations low. What do you have, Rich? I'm just going to start adding a negative to whatever number they expect. Just so I'm going to say negative 20,000 is my guess. Yeah. I'm going to go, I'm going to go minus 40. I will. <laughs> That'll get the bond market moving. But, yeah. 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 It, it, it but might I mean, help the bond market though, actually. So if we get a the, negative print for the bank of Canada. Yeah. So I think um, they, I think they're at the end of October, October 25th, I believe is their rate hike. So they do basically there's two big data points for the BOC to digest between now and then. And of course it's the job numbers coming out this Friday, as Keith just talked about. And then I think we've got CPI. I think it's might be next week, but those are kind of the two last data points to potentially sway the BOC's decision. Um, It'll also be interesting for you, Steve. It'll also be interesting to see how many uh, building permits <laughs> come out because next week you got building permits, you got manufacturing, a different type of manufacturing outlook. This one's from the BOC. And as you said, there's a CPI, but it'll, it'll be also interesting to see how many buildings are being built with the measures that have been implemented and counteracted by your boys yeah. there at the BC government. <laughs> I think those can be seasonally adjusted and annualized to kind of show like not, you know, the best, the best thing is, as Ben, who we had on the show, Ben Rabideau said, you know, look at building permits for a single family mm -hmm. um, because the, the shorter duration of the construction timeline allows developers or builders to pivot really quickly okay. uh, to changing economic scenarios. Whereas, you know, a building permit, for example, for an apartment building, because of the duration of the project, um, a lot of the times, you know, you can't pivot as the economy starts to change. So if you're really looking for leading indicators, building permits on single family homes, but cool. Um, speaking of central banks, Keith, we had the BOJ, uh, some updates in the BOJ, and then we had the RBA. So the RBA was out, uh, I think it was yesterday. Anyways, they're, mm -hmm. they're still on pause. They've now, they've now held rates for four consecutive meetings um, and so for all intents and purposes, I don't know if I want to say they're done, but it seems like they're done. Yeah, that's the Australians, everyone. Yeah. RBA Australia. Yeah. Which again, I would argue is pretty similar to Canada in the nature of, you know, highly levered housing market, highly levered private sector, very sensitive to short-term interest rates, uh, given the nature of their, their mortgage market. And they're also heavily influenced by China as well. So when the Chinese economy is, is moving in one direction or the other, you know, it has a huge impact on Australia. Uh, but then we have the Japanese. So the ninja in the room, is that we can? No, no, it? Godzilla, Godzilla. Godzilla, yeah, yeah. Somebody Godzilla? in the comments suggested Godzilla. That's impressive, actually, because it's, it's pretty hard to miss Godzilla if he was in the room. It's like a panda. Good. 
except cuter. Yeah, yeah, because the ninja is quiet, right? You may not even see him there. It may not make, make sense. I like the Godzilla. So the Godzilla is that, you know, Japanese are in this horrible predicament in that, you know, their the bond market is enormous because they've been borrowing you know, in excess forever. Um, and their currency is weakening at the same time. So they're trying to say, okay, what do we do here? Do we stop the currency or do we stop yields from rising? And like the bond market everywhere around the world, so rates are going higher everywhere. And I think people know by that. When rates are going higher, the price of bonds go lower. So with rates going higher, uh, it's having a pretty big negative impact on the pension funds over there, as well as bank regulatory capital, you, you name it. So uh, the, the Bank of Japan this week, everyone is waiting for them to, to do it. Uh, but they came out and they basically hinted, hey, we're going to stop the currency from falling and bond yields from rising. And immediately the Japanese yen, this was yesterday, I think, it, it immediately spiked 2%. So it, it appreciated by 2%. Wow, that's a uh, lot. I missed that. Yeah, that's enormous. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty big move. And uh, then it came, I think at the end of the day, up me, me strengthened maybe 0.6%, I think. But some some sucker got caught on the uh, the market trade order on that. <laughs> I was watching live. I said, as soon as it happens, like something like that, the way my mind works is not like, oh wow, that's a big spike. My mind works is, ooh, someone just lost their job. <laughs> anyway, uh, but the Japanese they spent, I think it was six or seven billion to defend the currency. And it basically brought it back to where it was last year. You want to explain that to like the listeners listening? I was like, well, okay, they so they spend six billion dollars defending the currency. How exactly do they do that? What's the sort of mechanism? Yeah, so they they sell US dollars that they hold and then they buy yen on the open market. So it's like your supply demand story with housing market. It's the same thing on the currency side. So all of a sudden you have a big buyer coming in, it causes the price to spike higher and, and, and so forth. But, and what do uh, they sell, Keith? And what do they sell? Yeah, so to get U.S. dollars, usually you're holding T-bills or T-bonds. So, not, so U.S. Treasury bills or Treasury bonds. You have to sell that. So you need something liquid. And that's what people don't realize sometimes. Like liquidity, I think people are realizing it now, actually. Liquidity is incredibly important. When, when times are great, you know, nobody values liquidity. But when all of a sudden, hey, times are tough. You uh you need to sell something. You need to be you need to be able to sell something and to get your money immediately and not affect the price. So that's why I like uh you know I laugh all the time. You know the Chinese you know, they they claim they have three trillion in in FX reserves, and uh, that ain't true. They they might have about eight hundred billion, maybe seven fifty now. The the other two trillion plus is in illiquid assets that they just cannot sell and get money for. Uh, so that's what was happening in Japan, and they didn't buy the bonds, by the way. So nobody could reconcile it this morning. Everyone's trying to figure out uh, what, what are the Japanese doing. But but again, like here in Canada, we're talking about what's happening with rates. How is it affecting mortgages in the housing market and everything? The, the whole world is watching the the Japanese as well. Because if, uh, if they put themselves in a position where they actually raise overnight rates, it, it could encourage a lot of... Um, Japanese money that is outside of Japan, you know, to, to come back home. And, you know, that could cause a, a pretty big rush of capital out, out of everywhere else. Japan well. raise rates seems seems unthinkable. Unthinkable. 
Um, there's a couple of points I wanted to add just on, on the RBA. So one thing that we, you know, we often talk about consumer confidence. So I just think it's like there's a positive and a negative for Australia. One is the consumer confidence numbers for Australia and New Zealand, because they're similar related economies, are just horrific. They're as bad as they were in the 1990s. So it's like a 40, sorry, 30 year, I can't do math, 30 year low, which is really kind of incredible. Um, again, we talked about how their mortgage market is leveraged to the front end of the curve and basically every 90 something percent of all of their mortgages were on variable going into this rate hike cycle. That number's fallen to like 60. So people are really getting dinged on that. Canada, and by um, the way, but, for one people wondering, Canada's kind of around like the 30%, like the total, okay. total market, Canada's kind of closer to 30. Now the very peak of the market, uh, 57% of new originations in Canada were going variable in February or January of 2022 before the first rate hike. Yeah. So, so that's why it, that's why it jumped out in Australia is nuts. Well, that's what jumped out at me because it's funny because, you know, people, Keith joked about buying low and selling high. Well, the people in Australia are doing the opposite and, I, and you sort of don't really blame them, right? Because they've got killed on this rising variable rate. And so they're trying desperate to lock in a, a rate now to sort of avoid any further pain. Problem is they're doing it sort of at the higher end of this rate hike cycle. We'll see what happens. But, but the other thing I want on the positive note for Australia is the CapEx cycle is restarting. Um, so China's importing coal from Australia again, uh, CapEx on and centered around mining. So Australia is one of the largest producers of iron ore, coal. It's a third, it's a third or fourth largest, sorry, fourth largest producer of copper, um, you know, aluminum bauxite, like you, you wouldn't believe it. anyway. So they're, they're starting to, that whole CapEx cycle, um, is restarting. The, the problem is, will it be enough to sort of offset the pain on the household sector? Who who knows? Um, similar thing in 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 China that there's some actually decent numbers coming out of that that sort of manufacturing what's, side. Uh, but their so what's carbon going on taxes, with, their carbon what's going tax on with, in China, that's really going to drag down <laughs> the investment as well. What's good? Yeah, what's going on with China coal imports? Uh, China coal imports hit an all time high. <laughs> so I, I wrote a note about that, which I'm quite proud of. Um, basically saying, you know, I'm quite positive on coal companies. You say, Rich, how is that possible? It's just that coal is an extremely, extremely useful product. And funnily enough, the higher and, and what's really cool is that you can turn coal into all kinds of hydrocarbon product products, meaning you can turn coal, which is fossil fuels and sort of and you can turn that into plastics and liquid fuel and synthetic fuel and all kinds of stuff. And the more expensive that the oil price gets, um, well, China has an incredible amount of, has built a lot of refining capacity. And through the process of coal liquefaction, you can import coal from Australia and turn it into um, fuel oils and diesel fuel and plastics and all kinds of product and sell it on to the rest of the world. So China's coal imports um, basically just, it peaked in 2022, it dipped a little bit. And now is right back up to um, all time highs. And this is for consumption for electricity. Remember, folks, China built, um, I think, 50 gigawatts of new capacity last year. I think that's a six times as much as every other country in the world combined. That's coal power plants. And as far as the total coal that they use consumption, um, it's by far and away the world's largest. So, I mean, I'm looking at the chart now, it's 25. Um, yeah, I mean, relative to just give, keep in mind the numbers, right? So, you know, it's, it's, the numbers are ridiculous. It's about, you know, 30 or 40% of all the coal basically consumed in the world is just trying to, and it's, and it's growing. Let's be very clear. That's the, that's the key bit. Good thing we're crushing Canadian households with carbon taxes. Yeah, it's, it's such a joke. It's, that it's will, such uh, a joke. 
Well, that's uh, I really want to talk about that one day. <laughs> that one's for you, Mr. Uh, Gilbo. There, he was also yeah, the guy that brought in that horrible bill for the podcasters. CRT. Oh, yeah, C18. I actually think that might help us. I've said that before, but who knows? But the other, the other thing on coal, just one more thing on coal, it's not just China. So, like, the second largest pop, uh, population in the world is India, as some people might know. And India has made it explicitly clear in virtually like all their major economic development papers. So, so companies, uh, so countries will write a paper saying, here's how we want to expand this industry, that industry. Here's how we want to make our population healthier, happier, richer, what have you. And basically, one of their key pillars to this is access to a cheap electricity for everybody everywhere in India. Now, a lot of people in electricity are not rich. Sorry, a lot of people in India are not poor or rich at all, and they need cheap access to cheap energy. And they're going to do this via coal. They've made absolutely no bones about it. Indonesia, also an enormously populous country, their coal uh, consumption is absolutely ripping and you'll love this keith do you know why <laughs> because why? it is it is the one of the major producers of nickel and a lot of other metals required for the green energy energy industry so th- so there's a little bit of irony going on oh, here just don't, don't you think of irony. i knew you'd love a that little yeah so they're consuming gobs and gobs of coal to help in the process of refining all of the metals that you need in order to build the electric vehicles and the wind farms and blah, blah, blah. And it's just deliciously hilarious. I mean, the other thing to point out, you know, the amount of carbon being produced by Canada as percentage of global carbon production, it is going to decline. It is falling rapidly. Yeah. Correct. But it has nothing to do with carbon taxes. It just has to do with the carbon being produced by China and India yeah. and everyone else. It's coming down as a percentage. You know, it's, uh, boy, so, yeah. good, good Rich, thing you don't have a, a podcast uh, tax or <laughs> registration. Rich, what's the, what's the solution here? Well, the solution is I think China is going to continue consuming an incredible amount of coal because it's useful, cheap, available, versatile. And most of the other emerging market countries in the world are going to absolutely follow that that playbook. I mean, how, how really can you blame them? And in the West, we're going to turn ourselves into a pretzel, making ourselves poorer with no appreciable difference to carb to global emissions at all. Uh, yeah. In the U.S., we've heard we talked about this a lot before. Natural gas killed coal, and natural gas exploiting natural gas resources, e.g., fracking, is what has cut down on U.S. emissions. And I've said this repeatedly, and I'll say it one last time, and just to round out our second anniversary show, if Canada was serious about lowering global emissions, we would be fracking the bejesus out of our country and selling that natural gas to China so it could stop using that coal. Um, But instead, we're going to do the exact opposite, which is great. So there you go. We got windmills. They're killing all the whales. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know it's great on that oh, just to wrap it up um if anyone someone say did someone say rap yeah. no, please. <laughs> oh no please um, but by the okay. way uh what what rich just shared then his viewpoint i agree with it 100 I, I think it's incredibly important rich 
And I know you said, you know, you said this before one last time. I, I want you to continue repeating okay. this, this story as we keep going, because I think it is incredibly important for everyone. Uh, go, go ahead, Steve. Sorry. No, about, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I would agree holistically. Um, I, I think the one thing I would add to that, Rich, I know you're a pretty big proponent of their research, but for those that are interested in really like understanding how um, understanding global energy markets and sort of where we're going and, and how this is all going to play out and, and, and really cutting through the BS uh, is Doomberg. Um, I think Doomberg yeah, I has, has done. So it's a sub stack. It's a paid sub stack, um, but they used to be on Twitter. I think they've solely gone focused on sub stack, but it's a paid subscription. They're basically just denoting and researching and analyzing the global energy markets. And, and they've definitely debunked or questioned a lot of the, so-called green energy transition and 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 again it really there's no political bias or views it's just hard data and and i think it's a very very valuable uh if you've got a few extra bucks kicking around uh i would highly recommend a great uh, great reading so the, i gotta jump on that too so he also pushes has pushed and i think in an articulate and extremely well thought out way nuclear power which of course has been shunned in the West for some freaking unknown reason as a way to basically make energy cheap and ubiquitous for everybody, blah, 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 at industrial scale. The other guy who, uh, Steve, I think you'd really like is called Noah Smith. We're giving all kinds of free plugs. Maybe Keith should plug his webcast, but um, Noah Smith also really does a great job sort of detailing and outlining um, the energy transition, its feasibility, what's going to happen and where, and some of our politicians might not like what they have to write, but I would submit to you they're extremely unbiased and very, very well researched. So there you go. Those are, oh. should we round up? Keith, you want to give us a, you want to end the note on a, on a plug for your. For the football score. Is that what oh, we're doing? Sure. Okay. Okay. We go to every ending now. We do the football. Yeah, I think we have now to wrap it up. Yeah. We're having a good season. Okay. Uh, this weekend, it is the 4-0 San Francisco 49ers hosting the 3-1 Dallas Cowboys. I blink all time. They're 19-19-1. and 19 and 1. I think it's something like that. It's been pretty even. Uh, so this game, it, it looks You're going to be close. there, by the way. Keith will be live. Yeah, I'll, I'll be there. I'll I'll be uh I'll be there. So it'll be fun. But uh it, it looks to be close on paper, but uh it, you know it, both teams change a little bit every year. But Dallas has kept it close over the last two years, uh, just because of special teams, you know, miscues. So I get that cleaned up. So I have Dallas actually uh, scored 16 points. I think that'll be good for the good for them. And the hometown 49ers, 29, Rich, 29, <laughs> 16. Keith, you almost nailed the last week's score. Did you? Do you remember that? You got. You said thirty-three to twelve, and it was thirty-three to sixteen or something. Yeah, it, it was. It was pretty. It's hard to get these things sometimes, but uh, it's a good sometimes. bit of fun. Sometimes, <laughs> no, you're amazing. I was watching the game. I was like, oh my god, he's gonna do it. <laughs> <laughs> 50, yeah, anyways, yeah. look for Keith on the fifty-yard uh, line there uh, at the uh, upcoming game I'll, here. So. I'll be the guy streaking, you know, in the middle of the uh, the field. You're gonna really need your binoculars for that one <laughs> there's a good place to wrap it up as always appreciate the support two years and we'll see you next week